1: The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Gwilda Wiaka's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Science of Magic or endorsed in any manner by Gwilda Wiaka, Relmar McConnell Media Company, its affiliated networks, stations, or employees.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to the Science of Magic, a program combining the science and magic of today's leading topics to co-create new solutions and support spiritual evolution. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Together we'll be exploring Shame on You. Two evil spirits erode the ability to embrace our gifts and make a profound contribution in the world, their names, guilt and shame. I often conversed with a woman who had six grown children. As my elder, I respected her greatly. Although we agreed on most things, we had one major area of disagreement. She believed we were inherently bad, and without guilt or shame to control people, they would do bad things. I regarded guilt as the underlying cause of deviant behavior. While extremely gifted and intelligent, all of her children had low self-esteem, feeling they never really fulfilled their potential. In her day, many parents took great pride in controlling their children through guilt and shame rather than corporal punishment. Having experienced both as a child, I'd rather take a good old-fashioned beating than be made ashamed of the very essence of who and what I am. A person brought up on guilt and shame is controllable. Most people will do almost anything to avoid the pain of being judged against and found wanting. Unfortunately, based upon our upbringing as adults, we tend to be the ones judging ourselves. The systems at large are more than happy to take full advantage of that vulnerability. How do we exercise these demons? How do we embrace our gifts and potential? How do we step beyond the shame that binds us? Our guests this hour may have some valuable guidance in overcoming guilt and shame. With us is Christy Arborn, the founder and CEO of HeartWorks Training, a business that supports people in the practice of mindfulness, self-compassion, shame-resilience, and tapping into emergent self-wisdom. Christy is a qualified social worker, a certified mindful self-compassion teacher, and has completed Internal Family Systems Level 1 training. She's passionate about supporting people and taking care of themselves so they can courageously do the important work they're called for. Her website, christyarbon.com. Christy, thanks so much for joining us on The Science of Magic.
3: Oh, I'm really happy to be here, Gwilda.
2: You're the founder of HeartWorks. What exactly is that?
3: Well, um, HeartWorks is is a little business um, that I set up basically t- as a platform for people to find trainings that I do. I offer a lot of in-person trainings with people. I offer online trainings as well, as well as uh, mentoring support for people to find their authentic way of uh, practicing mindfulness, self-compassion, and a contemplative practice. So it's really a home for the, the offerings that I, I have for, for folks in the community. Okay. What drew you to this work? Really, it was uh, my personal journey that drew me to this work. Um, I, my my motto is: um, I teach so that I can learn, and I learn so that I can teach. So, what I the work that I do with other people is basically it's my own work that I just sort of share uh, with, with folks that I work with. So my personal journey has been one of um, a lot of shame. Uh, you talked about shame in the introduction there. A lot of shame, feelings of unworthiness, confusion around my emotions, not understanding what I needed to do to help myself out and i've been through quite a process of really getting a handle on that emotion of shame learning how to soothe myself understanding the science of shame how shame comes up and then learning how to uh, learning tools to help myself so that i can function uh, pretty well in the in the community i feel like i offer quite quite some lovely services to people in the community based on what I've learned and because I I have um, a degree of shame resilience.
2: Well, it's time for a commercial break. Christy and I will return shortly, so don't go away. You're listening to The Science of Magic. Our current episodes are aired daily on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net. In service to our listeners, prior innovative episodes can always be accessed free of charge on our website, thescienceofmagic.net. The Science of Magic is produced by Ramah McConnell Media Company, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. I'm your host, Wilda Wyaka. Our guest this hour is Christy Arbon, the founder, C and CEO of Heartworks Training. Her website, com. Christy, um, so life has been your training ground. What other training do you have uh, that enables you to help people?
3: Sure. So my my university training, I trained in Australia, which is my, my motherland. I trained in uh, psychology and philosophy, also social work, and um, I did some fitness leadership training as well, which might seem a little bit unusual, but it sort of fits in with my goal to help other people meet their goals. Then when I came to the States, I also did internal family systems training. Um, I've done quite a lot of mindfulness and meditation training. I'm a certified mindful self-compassion teacher through the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. So that's sort of how I augmented the that basic training I had in Australia. Nice. So do, um, are you involved in Buddhist philosophy, it sounds like? Yeah, I I spent five years working at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Massachusetts. I definitely had an interest in Buddhist philosophy, and I went up there to work. I was the manager there, um, mostly to deepen my practice and to immerse myself in a community that was also interested in Buddhist philosophy. Do you have to be involved in Buddhism to benefit from what you offer? Oh, not at all. No, no. I don't even consider myself a Buddhist. I'm really interested in the philosophy and the psychology and some of the practices. So I incorporate some of the practices that are accessible. Not all Buddhist practices are accessible for for people. So I incorporate some of them and some of the philosophy into my work. But no, no no previous uh, experience with Buddhism required. You know, my Tibetan shamanic teacher believed that Tibetan
2: shamanism and Buddhism were interrelated, and he taught the path to spirit was in self-knowledge and self-acceptance. Would you speak to the relationship with, us, with the authentic self and its importance in spiritual enlightenment?
3: Well, I would say a relationship with your authentic self is the goal of, spirit, of spirituality, basically. A definition of spirituality is connection with ourselves and with our external world. So we might call a connection with ourselves uh, tuning into our soul's purpose, and we might call connection with something outside of us as being a, a spirituality, a sense of something higher or bigger than ourselves. So I strongly believe that we need to make that connection. What is my soul's purpose? How do I learn to listen to myself? What is important to, to me? And then how does that relate to the larger piece, this sense of something larger than, than me that sort of helps me to hold myself as this little being in this this bigger piece in the universe.
2: Do you believe we're in times of, um, that support spiritual evolution right now?
3: Well, I think any time in history where there's some upheaval, where there's a, a clash of cultures, where people are feeling unseen or unheard, these are times that are really ripe for um, spiritual development partly because we are forced to ask questions like what is important to me, partly because we're we're realising that the things that are important to us um, are not happening in our culture. So we think about, um, and and I I live in the US, so the political climate in the US is, is interesting at the moment and people are surprised and confused and dismayed. I mean, Some people are also very happy about the political situation. But for those people who are surprised and confused and dismayed, this is a real time to consolidate their understanding of basically of their soul's purpose, of their core values, because they're feeling unseen and unheard. So we're in a really good time in history, in the States in particular and in other countries, to really tune into what's important to us. So, do you feel
2: like the systems are failing us, and that's part of the uh, impetus to move to change the system? Which systems are you referring to, Gilda? Um, just the systems at large. You were talking about the political system, then there's the economic system. There's the you know the way the countries are organized, the you know media, everything. Everything around us seems to be diametrically opposed to the better um, betterment of the individual.
3: Yeah, well, I guess it depends on your perspective. There, um, if you're, if you're, um, maybe if you're in corporate America, you, you might see that the current climate is really good for you. If you are uh, someone trying to emigrate to the United States, you might see that this current climate is really unfriendly to you. So it really depends on on your your perspective. And I'm not sure that there's a clear connection between the political climate or the economic climate and our sense of connection to our soul. Um, As I said, I think when when we're finding ourselves in times of challenge, that's when we really are invited to go inside to um, rely on our internal resources and also to rely on our spiritual resources, our spiritual community, our spiritual friends. So I... I think I think in times of challenge they actually do encourage us to uh, to develop spiritually.
2: I I couldn't agree more. What does personal healing have to do with our ability to evolve?
3: Well, once again I would say personal healing is um is our ability to evolve. Personal healing is really a journey. It's it's quite a um a shamanic journey. It's a journey into all of those dark places of ourselves that we don't want to to go to. Um, as they say, the only way uh, out is through. We really have to go. We have to do that dark night of the soul to get, get through our, our internal landscape. We all have dark places, valleys in our internal landscape. We need to understand ourselves, we need to understand that internal landscape, and that self-knowledge is what leads us to a a sense of enlightenment. I would see enlightenment partly as being a a full or a, a, a more full understanding of our internal landscape. We don't have any surprises. We know what's there. We know what we're working with. Well, what do you see as the greatest obstacle
2: to personal evolution?
3: You know, it's really interesting. Um, I saw a documentary once where this very old, wizened uh, monk in the Christian tradition who was living in a monastery, he was asked the question, what is your greatest obstacle to uh, full realization or enlightenment? And without even thinking, he said, the other monk's. Which I thought was sort of funny. He was talking about it's it's the relationships that really get in the way of him realizing his full potential, and I guess to some degree I would I would agree with that. If I lived totally alone, then I feel like uh, I would probably really be able to dedicate myself to um to to a to that goal of enlightenment. It's relationships that can really get in the way. And most of our wounding happens in relationships. So we have to go back to relationships, either with ourselves or with other people, in order to heal those wounds. So I I would say uh, relationships and those old stories that we play about who did what to us and what they deserve and, and how we've been a, a victim or unfairly treated. I think they are probably one of the biggest obstacles to, uh, to realizing enlightenment. So are you saying that um,
2: either we have to isolate ourselves so we're not being triggered into our damage by re- current relationships or move through our current damage so we can be in relationships and be re- enlightened at the same time?
3: Well, given that we're such social beings, um not many of us are inclined for to to full isolation. I know some people are some people are very happy to be completely isolated, but most for most of us, uh, our best bet is to work on our relationship with our current relationships, so that's with people external to us and our relationship. With ourself. And you mentioned shame earlier on. Shame is one of the largest barriers to fully being in relationship with ourselves and, and with other people. So no, I'm not suggesting we all go and live in the forest and, and eat nuts and berries. I'm saying there's, there's some really good work that we can do to stay in connection with the people that we love who support us. What exactly is shame? Where does it come from? Shame is, um, it's a very old, innocent emotion. It, it, it often comes from childhood. Certainly we can develop shame as an adult. Shame is that feeling that if people knew a particular thing about me, they wouldn't love me, basically. So shame is like a secret that we hold a negative core belief that we feel about ourselves. And it's usually something like, I'm unlovable, um, I'm too fat, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not smart enough. Um, it, it's usually something like that that we believe. We are so worried that people are going to find out that we are not lovable or we're too fat or we're not smart enough, that we work, our internal system works terribly hard to keep that secret this is where shame derives its power is through the 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 secret the, the silence around this thing so it develops in childhood and in childhood the tools that we have to survive basically as a child are things like our ability to evoke love from the people around us the adults around us. That's really the only tool we have. Babies are so jolly cute, you can't help but want to hold them and cuddle them and love them. And this is part evolutionarily, this is part of how we survive as a species. We as adults love to nurture a a baby. So their tool for survival is I'm really cute. Um, As we start to get a little bit older, um, we learn that as long as I am cute or as long as I behave myself or as long as I am smart or creative or athletic or whatever it might be. Um, these are the things that the adults around me will love me for. I'm not what saying I- all I'm not saying all of us develop this way, but for some people we learn that the adults around us will only love us. If we have particular attributes that um, that are deemed positive, and so we learn to try and hide any sense that we are not these things, and this is what shame is 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 trying to, to is putting a lot of emotional energy into hiding hiding the fact that that maybe we're not athletic or we're not smart or whatever it might be. So that's that's sort of shame in a nutshell.
2: It sounds kind of like a total lack of um, of self-worth. And where did that go? Aren't we kind of born with that? We have about half a minute left with that question. We can pick it up on the other side.
3: Sure. Well, we are born with self-worth and definitely shame. Shame is a mechanism that says my self-worth is contingent. time for that short pause. We will <laughs> sure. pick up
2: with this on the other side. Christy and I will return to our discussion. After this commercial break, so don't go away. We're coming to you through the Zone Broadcast Network. Don't miss the other fine shows and hosts on xzbn.net. You're listening to The Science of Magic, your resource for creative solutions in a changing world, thescienceofmagic.net. Welcome back. This is the science of magic, a place where magic and science come together to promote enlightenment. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. Our guest this hour is Christy Arbon, the founder and CEO of HeartWorks Training. Her website, christyarbon.com. Christy, we were talking about where did shame come from? You said that uh, we were born or should be born with a, a natural self-esteem, a natural feeling of worthiness. Where does the wrench get thrown in the works?
3: Yeah, well, the wrench gets thrown in the works when the adults around us, uh, and this is caregivers, teachers, people in our church, in our spiritual community, uh, people in our in our um, class community or our status community, they start to tell us that our self-worth is contingent. Now, our self-worth should never be contingent. Um, all children in an ideal world should be born understanding that they are put on earth to thrive and that the adults around them, um, that's what the adults around them want to do, is to nurture them and encourage them to realise their full potential. Unfortunately, because of cultural norms, because of Things like a legacy of uh, how to raise children that you know w- that was passed down through the generations. Unfortunately, because of these, we start to um, we start to get that 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 sense of inherent self worth covered over by a new sense of. Um, Self worth that is reliant on approval, basically. So it's that big word, approval. I learned so, that I'm not, not worthwhile unless I'm approved of. So that it's a, it's a, a means of control. It is a means of control, yeah. And, you know, parents and teachers and other people in authority roles do that without even realising that they're doing it. Certainly as a parent, if you were parented in that way and and you were controlled to maybe to keep you safe or to help you to conform to norms um, – a parent thinks you know, may well think this is um this is a responsible way to raise my child is to instill a sense of fear of being rejected so that they won't be rejected, so that my child won't be rejected, so you know even teaching shame or parenting from shame comes from a very innocent place and usually a desire to keep your child safe. I'm so glad you brought that up because (laughs) I heard one time,
2: okay, the house is still standing. The kids are still alive. I did my job. You know, parenting is hard and we only have, we don't have any lessons in it. We aren't trained at it in school. All we have is a reflection of the way we were brought up and our cultures have some, some good ways of training and some way, not so good ways of training, right?
3: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I really wish that we would teach parenting at school. You know, t- teach children what it means to be um, a, a conscientious, a kind, a compassionate parent. But, yeah, as you say, we just don't teach it. Our only model is our own parents. And our own parents, they were their sense of parenting c- could have come from something like an era where um, there was a world war going on or there was a depression or there was, you know, the Cold War, something like that. So their style of parenting may have come from an era that's not even relevant anymore. You know, we're not in a Cold War. We're not in a World War. And yet some of us are being parented as if we were. Right. And, you
2: know, what's interesting about this whole thing is we can teach all we want to about how to parent. But it still ends up being a knee-jerk reaction sometimes from our past damage. And shamanically speaking, this is like what we call uh, patterning. Okay. So, uh, you have a knee jerk reaction. I'll never forget the time I was channeling my mother. My son spilt his milk and I went, you weren't going to be happy until you spilt that milk. And I went, Oh mother, I'm channeling you. You know, it just came out of my mouth and it sounded just like her. So there's this deep imprint. How can we, and it's not just in parenting, it's in life in general. How can a person recognize when they're being controlled by shame rather than authentic expression?
3: Well, one of the things about shame is it is a response from our fight, flight, freeze system. So our amygdala, this really old part of our brain that tells us when it determines, am I in threat or am I not in threat? So when our amygdala determines that we are in threat, then this whole cascade of, um, of follow-on effects happens. It puts the brain into, should I fight, should I run away, or should I freeze, should I stay stay in place? So in order to, uh, but basically, this is a signal, this may be a signal that we're in shame, if we're in a situation and our fight, flight, freeze response comes into play and this will be, you know, one of those things where we will push back at the uh, the object of or the person who's caused us shame. Uh, we may blame, we may get angry, you know, we, we might raise our voice. So that's one sign we're in shame. Um, we may, the other way we might deal with shame is we might move towards The object of our shame and try to placate that object of our shame, try and make good, usually by compromising ourselves. How can I help? What did I do wrong? I'm I'm so bad. What can I do now? Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. the The third way we deal with shame is by running away, basically. So just get out of that situation, get away from that person who's calling us shame, causing us shame. So we We know that – so if we can use that as our marker when any of those things start to happen, when we have done some shame resilience training, when we have a sense of mindfulness, we can notice when we're going to one of those um, responses, call it shame – this is one of the really important parts of uh, developing shame resilience – call it shame – and then bring in um, some of the tools that we've learned to take care of ourselves when we're yeah. when we're shame. Yeah. Okay.
2: This might seem a little unrelated, but I'm going to go full circle with it. What's the importance of bridging heart and and mind? That <laughs>
3: that that is a little bit from left field. <laughs> so. Uh, we, I get some people. Well, there, there is a belief that our heart, or I tend to interchange heart and and body. Heart and body. Um, there is a school of thought that the body is is actually the mind, or is part of the mind because it's a source of information for us. Any emotions that we have have a mental component and they have a physical component. So the mental component, say with shame, the mental component might be um, we freeze, um, things uh, go in slow motion. Um, All we can think about is the object of our shame. That would be the mental component. The body component might be a, a tightness behind our, our sternum, or some sort of bodily response. You know, a, a wrenching in our gut, or a, even a constriction in our throat. That might be how we feel shame. So the connection between what's going on in our in our head and what's going on in our body um, is a very is a very real one. These things happen at the same time, except what's happening in our body is much slower moving we have a much better um, ability or, or a much better chance of getting in touch with what's going on in our body what's happening in our heart space than we are to try and get a hold of what's going on in our mind because that can be very quick so this connection with our body this Tuning into what's happening in in our in our body can be a really nice way to get a handle on what's going what's going on for us.
2: Right, I know it kind for- of
3: gives us a kind of gives us a binocular vision. We have what's going on in the mind,
2: we have what's going on in the heart, and that gives us more depth perception of the situation.
3: Yeah, well, so, sometimes um, it's that body response or that heart response that we notice first, even before we're aware that we're in a particular emotion. So we might notice that tightness behind the sternum or that feeling of heartache before we even know that we're in shame or we're in anger or we're in, you know, some other emotion. So it, it, it does it's a, it is a really nice source of information for us. Absolutely. So here's the full circle. How does shame keep us out of our heart? Well, given that shame is um, an, it comes from an amygdala response telling us we're in threat, um, it takes us away from our connection with our self, our connection with our soul, our connection with our spirituality, partly because our system is designed to survive. It's designed to notice threat and respond to threat. It's not actually designed to make us happy. Our biological organism, it's not designed to make us happy because in reality, being happy doesn't help the species survive. Noticing threat and avoiding threat does help. As species survive. So when we get into that threat mode, that fight, flight, freeze, um, we actually are not able to feel um, all of those, what we might call the mammalian caregiving aspects of ourselves, the, the, the tending and befriending, the connection, the warmth, the kindness, the soothing, um, all of those are shelved so that we can um, we can fully be with this act of surviving. Shame is a survival response. So all of that nice stuff, that smelling the roses stuff, that connecting with self stuff, that, that's, that's put on the back burner while we just tend to surviving. And what's interesting, though, that I've
2: noticed the difference, Christy, between animals that go into fight and flight and people is when a deer is disturbed from its grazing, it runs over the next hill, okay, just runs like crazy, Then it stops, looks around, everything's cool, it'll sit back down to grazing, everything goes back to normal. They don't store the trauma as a rule like humans do. Humans store trauma somehow, and so oftentimes that fight or flight is uh, not necessarily from clear and present danger, but rather from something that triggered an old stored trauma that feels dangerous. Can you speak to that?
3: yeah well the problem is this very this highly evolved brain that we have it's highly evolved to notice threat to respond to threat and then it goes a little bit overboard in things like rumination and anxiety so while the deer with you know I mean, we might call it a less highly evolved brain, but I'm pretty sure there are no deer out there suffering from anxiety and depression. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how highly evolved we are, but um, with our brain, um, that um, having a sense of ourself in this timeline of the past and the future, the past being places where we experience things like being chased or being threatened. The future being a place where we might potentially be chased or be threatened. Um, some people uh, say that the seat of the self is in the middle of those two: our past and our, our future. Our um, uh, it, it's it's actually called the default mode network in in the brain. Um, when when we're resting, our brain will go to um, having a look at what happened in the past, thinking about the future. And what our evolved brain has done, it's gone. It's gone overboard in rumination and and worry about the future. And obviously, these can extend to things like depression, anxiety, panic attack. These sort of things. These are the the over um, overperforming functions we, of our brain. Reviewing going, the past, and the
2: future. We're gonna, We're going to need to take another break. Christy and I will be back shortly, so don't leave us now. This is the Science of Magic, your resource to altruistic professionals of science and the esoteric working to create common ground for the betterment of our world. thescienceofmagic.net
1: Hi everyone, Rob McConnell here and I wanted to spend a moment on internet streaming. Everybody has heard about internet streaming, but not many know much about it. Did you know the internet streams just about everything? Movies, from new releases to old classics, TV shows, almost every show, every episode, and much more. But the question has always been, how do you do it?
2: Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, bringing together p- gifted people of service to the world. I'm your host, Gilda Wiecka. What's up in your world? Email me at info at the of dot net, net and suggest a topic that's on your mind. You're probably not the only one interested. Our guest this hour is Christy Arbon, the founder and CEO of HeartWorks Training. Her website, com. Christy, who does ultimately, who does guilt and shame serve?
3: <laughs> I don't think shame serves anybody um, other than maybe those people who are acting to shame us. They might feel they've, ha- they have some sense of control over a situation or they've done something skillful. But ultimately, shame is never a skillful response, partly because shame erodes our, our belief in ourself as a valuable human being and that can never be a useful place for us to come from. Um, if we believe that we are inherently bad or we're continually worried that other people are going to discover that we're inherently bad, we're always coming from a place of fear We can never come from a place of authenticity. A child cannot thrive if they're they're constantly in a sense of shame, um, worried about their survival, basically. That's never a good place to be. So I don't see any place where shame is a good idea. I know some people have a belief that shame is useful. What I would say is that guilt is useful The difference between guilt and shame is shame says I am a bad person. Guilt says I did something that wasn't so good or I did something bad. It doesn't internalise a belief in ourself. It puts that, that action is external to me and we have a much better opportunity to do something about it because we maintain a sense of self-worth. It was just something I did. It doesn't, um, it's not me that's bad. So I'd say guilt is useful in um, helping us to learn from our uh, mistakes, basically. We do something and it affected someone else negatively. We see that that happened. Guilt would come in and say, oh, that was a pretty unskillful thing that I did. With a self-compassion practice, we could notice we could take care of ourselves from that place. Oh, you know, I did I did something that wasn't really so good. I feel bad about it. I'm going to soothe myself and take care of myself, and then from that place, I can move to making amends. Once yeah, I've you taken give,
2: care of- you're back in power. It's it's not something that's inherently wrong with you. It's something that you did that you can correct.
3: Yeah, so I can yeah. go and, and apologise to that person. I can do something to, to mitigate the circumstances that, that that I created by doing that unskillful thing. So guilt is really quite useful. Shame, I'm really unlikely to apologise in, in shame um, unless it's to try and get out of shame. It's not yeah. a true apology when it comes from shame. So exactly. we always want to come from guilt. I think guilt is really useful so
2: how do we exercise this shame demon what is shame resilience you
3: know, it's quite a practice, and it really takes a dedication to personal development. I would say one of the first things to do around learning shame resilience is to read, read about shame resilience. And uh, my, uh, one of my, I have three main teachers. One of my teachers, uh, Brené Brown. I would highly recommend reading books by Brené Brown. She's done research into shame, shame resilience vulnerability, worthiness, and she writes some really accessible books about this topic. So reading first, um, doing some work with a therapist or some kind of healer who has a handle on shame, and often that means they have a handle on their own shame first. Not all therapists, not all healers understand shame. So seeking out someone who who can really help you through that process of understanding your own shame better Mm, and then mm -hmm. there are are a bunch of practices that you can do to help yourself work with shame and some of the really basic practices we can do are things like which I've already mentioned um, noticing feelings in our body how does shame show up in our body labeling an emotion as shame. So these are mindfulness techniques that we use noticing in our body, labeling as shame, giving ourselves what we need in that moment. So when you're in the grip of shame, what what do you need? For many people they need to give themselves a space away from that situation where they can basically go away and lick their wounds if we were to talk about, you know, how animals respond to being hurt. Shame is a wounding. We've been wounded. So going away and uh, making ourselves warm, um, staying in touch with our body as much as we can, maybe getting a warm cup of tea, maybe going for a walk, whatever it is that nurtures us, that soothes Mm. us and just writing shame out. Basically, often we just need to stay with ourselves as we write it out. So you you speak and
2: this is a little change in subject, but I want to touch onto it before we're out of time. You speak of turning to your unique soul purpose. Would you please explain what you mean by that?
3: So we all have a sole purpose. We all have um, core values. Basically, we don't create these core values or this sole purpose. We can learn. We can uncover what our sole purpose is, and it, there are there are, there are universal core values. So it, it's usually something like I care about community or family or connection or creativity. All of these. Um, our soul purpose, and we can have a number of different core values or, or soul purpose. We've often um, forgotten what our soul purpose is. We've gotten caught up in career or family or keeping the people around us happy. We've forgotten what truly makes our heart sing so getting in touch with what is our core value, what is our soul purpose, can really help us to create a life that feels like it is right for us. We are truly living in alignment with what what um, what nourishes us, what helps us to thrive. So there are ways that we can get in touch with um, our soul purpose, and they're really basic, and they tend to be things like just – sitting in stillness, going internally and asking what is really important to me or looking back on past events and identifying where did I feel most alive, most vibrant, most right, where, where did I really feel in my body, connected and like I was doing good things in the world this points toward our soul purpose or our Mm. core values. So the more we can align our goals and our lifestyle with that soul purpose, uh, the happier we'll be, the more connected to ourselves and the people around us we we will be.
2: You also mentioned learning about your authentic spiritual path. What's that and how does it differ from soul purpose? Well,
3: they're very connected, actually. Um, If we are on a spiritual path, that maybe it was a spiritual path that was handed down to us because we're in a culture that holds this as the spiritual path. Maybe we simply landed on a spiritual path because we wanted one and that one, sit, that one was nearby or all our friends are in that spiritual path. Um, if we've done that, we may not have actually chosen a path that helps us align with our core values. There are so many different spiritual paths that we can follow. If when we, when we uh, tune into our core values, to our soul purpose, and we discover that one of our core values is nature, many people have this core value of being in nature. Being in nature can be a highly spiritual experience people. So if we notice that a core value or a sole purpose is being in nature, then we can look for practices or even a spiritual path that puts us in nature, that gives us tools or practices or rituals or ways of being in nature that um, that really feed us, that really nourish us. Mm -hmm. So we can do this with any of our core values that we have. There are so many paths and practices out there. We're in a, an amazing time in history where we can choose it any path. It is very path. rich. Yeah,
2: yeah, it is very rich. We have about a minute left. Um, and, you know, the world's, as we, where we started was, there's you know, there's a lot of turmoil going on right now. Um, what do you see as the most important components that an individual can contribute to global healing?
3: I think personal healing. <laughs> it might it might sound selfish, but honestly, until we heal ourselves, we we can't go out into the world and sustainably do the work that a community needs for it to move towards healing. So, working on ourselves first—that is that—that that, that, exactly you can't give what you don't have, right? Absolutely, yeah,
2: yeah. And doesn't that go full circle? You can't give what you have if you're ashamed of who you are
3: absolutely and if we're coming from a place of authenticity giving what we have we give other people permission to do the same thing so they they learn by our example
2: yeah that's one of the most enlightening things i've ever experienced is standing in a in in the presence of someone that has no shame
3: oh isn't that amazing
2: (laughs) it's absolutely amazing christy time flies and we're out of it i can't thank you enough for being with us and bringing your wonderful wisdom Oh, you're welcome. It was
3: a true delight, Gwilda.
2: <laughs> Real pleasure. Our guest this hour has been Christy Arbon, the founder and CEO of HeartWorks Training, qualified social worker, and certified mindful self-compassion teacher. Her website, christyarbonne.com. This has been the Science of Magic. Join our email family to be the first to receive our thought-provoking, topic-driven episodes collections at thescienceofmagic.net. Until next time, dear ones. May you be blessed with knowledge and comforted with love as you break the shackles of shame.